Good. You're, you're perfect. Okay, I'm going to turn this down just a little bit more. There we go. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. Noel, thank you for coming. You represent the high school group. All right, so let's, let's start with prayer. Um, there's a lot to, a whole lot to cover. I mean, how do you, how do, you do the Trinity at all, let alone in two weeks? And so let's, let's pray. Let's ask God to bless our time. Dear Father, thank you for this time this morning. And Lord, we come to you absolutely dependent on you. Lord, we depend on you for, for every breath. Lord, we depend on you for life. We depend on you for everything. And, and Lord, to, to know and understand you takes us to a whole new level of dependence. And so, so we just ask you to be with us and to help us this morning. And Lord, we pray not just for our time here in Sunday school, but we pray for our time in the service together as, as all your saints gather together, Lord. Bless that time as well. We pray that it would strengthen our faith and give us everything that we need to continue living as Christians another week. Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you for what you do in the gathering of your people. Bless our time again. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are, we are looking at the Trinity, and I should probably get my notes out. And we've been doing this study for some time now. It started last year, and it's a study in systematic theology. So we started with the Word of God and just looked at the fact that we can trust God for what he said in the Bible. How do we know about God? We know about God from the Bible. And so we started with the Bible and the Word of God is absolutely trustworthy. We can trust every word of it. Um, it's been faithfully and accurately handed down to us. And so we know that what we have is 99.99% of what the original transcripts were. So, so we have an accurate copy of God's Word. And, um, and then we looked at the doctrine of God, and that's what we're in right now. And we've looked at the existence of God, the knowability of God. God is knowable. This transcendent God is actually a God that we can know. We can know him personally. And, and although we can't know him exhaustively, we can know true things about him. And we can know everything we need to know to have saving faith. And then we looked at not just the nobility of God, but then the attributes of God. What is he like? And we looked at his characteristics. And then we moved into looking at his being. Who is God in his being? And that's the Trinity. And this is part two. So the Trinity, to, today we're going to define the Trinity, but it's going to be brief. But there will be the Trinity defined, the Trinity distorted, and that's some, some distortions of the Trinity, and then also the Trinity applied. And I would like to spend more time in Trinity applied. And so that's where we'll land. So the Latin word Trinitas means threeness. And there, when we deal with one God who is three persons, we're dealing with paradox. And so Jim and I were talking about this last week, and I'm going to read briefly from chapter one, which is the introduction to systematic theology, and I think, I think it's helpful here. 
So when we study theology, we have to study with reason. That's, that's one of the ways, with humility, with worship, but also with reason. And, and that means that we take what the Bible says and we can apply our reason to it. Okay, what, is, what does this mean? And, but we can't let our reason lead us into believing something that is contrary to something that the Bible teaches. Does that make sense? And so here's, here's what Grudem says. This principle safeguards against our misguided or incorrect logical deductions from Scripture. Our supposedly logical deductions may be erroneous. But Scripture is not erroneous. Thus, for example, we may read Scripture and find that God the Father is called God. That is true. And that God the Son is also called God. And that God the Holy Spirit is called God. We might deduce from this that there are three gods. But then we find the Bible explicitly teaching us that God is one. Thus, we conclude that what we thought to be a valid logical deduction about three gods was wrong. And that scripture teaches both that there are three separate persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God, and that there is one God. But how can this be? In our human experience, we understand what it means to know three separate persons, three friends, for example. But these three friends are three separate beings. How can God be three persons and yet one being? Second, Christians, Christian theology can tolerate a paradox, but God never asks us to believe a contradiction. We cannot understand exactly how these two statements about God can both be true. So together they constitute a paradox, a seemingly contradictory statement that may nonetheless be true. We can tolerate a paradox such as God is three persons and one God because we have confidence that ultimately God knows fully the truth about himself and about the nature of reality and that in his understanding the different elements of a paradox are fully reconciled even though at this point God's thoughts are hidden thoughts or, or I'm sorry, are higher than our thoughts. But a true contradiction such as God is three persons and God is not three persons would imply ultimate contradiction in God's understanding of himself and, or of reality, and this cannot be. So, so what we're dealing with when we talk about the Trinity is paradox, not contradiction. And so just keep that in mind as we go. We can understand something about this and it can lead us into worship, but we will never be able to understand it perfectly. So, so first, the Trinity defined. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. There are other definitions, but I think this is very succinct, and it tells us everything we need to know. And so let's, let's quote those three parts. There's three parts to this definition of the Trinity. Let's read it out loud together. So part number one, which is an essential part. Let's do it together. God is three persons. Number two, each person is fully God. Number three, there is one God. <clears throat> so God is three distinct persons. There is plurality within the Godhead. Again, last week we looked at, you, you see that back in Genesis chapter 1 and all the way through Scripture. There is this 
sense of plurality. And as it unfolds, we see that that plurality is not an indefinite number. It's three. There are three persons. And it's composed of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. They are distinct. The Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Father is separate from the Son, and the Son is separate from the Father, and so forth. Okay? And, and we see that, you know, in Jesus' baptism, we see that in when Jesus ascended into heaven, when, when he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular name, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then we see that throughout Scripture, this fact that God is three persons. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to move on. We talked about that more last week. Each person is fully God. God the Father is clearly God. That's the easy, I mean, that's just clear from all of Scripture. But then also Jesus is fully God. Jesus is God. And Isaiah, in chapter 9, Isaiah was a prophet who grew up every single morning he would have said the Shema. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. As, as a, a, a Jewish, a faithful Jewish believer, he would have quoted that every single morning. Isaiah believed with all his heart and soul that God is one. And yet he wrote in Isaiah 9, anticipating the birth of the Messiah, that he would come the promised one. And he wrote, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Anticipating the birth of Jesus. What is he going to be called? Everlasting God. Everlasting Father. Father of eternity. And then, and then Jesus in John chapter 8 said one of the most telling things. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And he used the name that God gave himself, Yahweh, I am. And so we know that. God the Father. Isaiah 9, yeah. So, so God the Father is God. God the Son, Jesus is God, and then the Holy Spirit is God. Um, Ananias, I mean, again, it's throughout Scripture, but Ananias, when, um, when he lied, Peter said to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then later he said, you have not lied to men, but to God. So when Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, he was lying to God himself. So we have the Trinity defined. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. And then next, the Trinity distorted. Now you can imagine, if this is the very, the very essence of who God is, where is Satan going to attack? R right here. And there's been satanic attacks on this since, 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 um, since it's, it's been affirmed. 
So in the history of the church, this has always been under attack. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so Trinity distorted. If you miss any one of these, then you distort the Trinity. So if you, if, you, if you deny that God is three persons, you distort it. If you deny that each person is fully God, you distort it. Or if you deny that there is one God, you distort who God is and how we are to understand him. And so there was, there was an error, and really there's nothing new under the sun, but there was an error that that embraced one God, but throughout the three persons. And, and that error was, there, there was a teacher named Sibelius who taught in Rome in the third century. And so it's often called Sibelianism, but we call it modalism. And, and modalism says, yes, there's one God, but this God appears to us in three different persons. So, so it affirms there is one God and it affirms in a way that each person is fully God, but it denies the distinction in the Godhead, that the God is three distinct persons. And so, how does, he, how does he come to this? And, and so what, what he was doing is he was looking at the Bible and saying, well, we cannot deny that Jesus is God. We cannot deny that the Holy Spirit is God. So, so how do we maintain that God is one? And he suggested that God of the Old Testament is God the Father. The God of the Gospels is God the Son. So he comes to us in the form of Jesus. He's no longer God the Father. He's now God the Son. And then after Pentecost, and in the modern day right now in the church, he exists as God the Holy Spirit. So it's still just one God wants to maintain that, but God takes on different forms at different times in history. And, and they would look at verses like John 10. I and the Father are one. Or John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So in his zealous attempt to maintain that there is one God, he said, well, there you have it. Jesus and God are indistinguishable. God has become God the Son. Now, modalism is an attempt to make the Trinity easy to understand, right? It's how can we understand that? So it drops God to the level of human being, and it has him operating in different functions, just as you and I would operate in different functions, like Wayne. Wayne, you are a father, a husband, and an engineer. And, and so you could, you could look at it that way. Three different hats, one person, and, and that's, what, that's what God is, they would say. And th this does not have much traction within the church. There's the United Pentecostal Church, or they're called Jesus only. But even within the Pentecostal movement, this church, is, this, is, this has been rejected since, I think it was 1916, that they were rejected and cast out of this group because of their views on the Trinity. And so it's not widely accepted. And, and in fact, they baptized people in the name of Jesus only, which is clear contradiction to Matthew 28. So 
So that was modalism. Yeah. Yeah. person is fully God, so I think it's acceptable to pray to each member of the... So we might thank the Holy Spirit for opening our eyes so that we could understand the gospel. Um, that's a function that the, of the Holy Spirit. And we might thank God for devising this wonderful plan where he would send his son to save us. And, and so Jesus gave us a demonstration on how to pray, and he said, Our Father, who art in heaven. So oftentimes we pray to God the Father, and we pray in Jesus' name. But we recognize that it's the Holy Spirit that makes those prayers even effective, that God can even receive them, and that's Romans 8, etc., where the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans. And so, so I think it's acceptable to pray to God the Father, it's acceptable to pray to God the Son, it's acceptable to pray to God the Holy Spirit. What Pastor Brett is saying is that what we don't want to do is attribute what the Son did to the Father. There's this distinction there, and it's a beautiful distinction, and that will come up at the end when we, we look at applying this. Is that an answer? Um, so then, <clears throat> error two, Arianism, which denies the full, oh, I should actually, the Trinity, one God, three distinct persons, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and yet each one is God, and each one is God fully. That means all the attributes that we've looked at that describe God apply to Jesus. All the attributes apply to the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus became flesh, he limited himself. He was not limited, but he chose to humble himself and not grasp all of those attributes, even though they were, they were still his. And so there's, there's mystery here. But um, this is modalism where God, this, this intense desire to honor the fact that there is one God, then says that, well, he sometimes functions in these three different capacities. Now we're on to Arianism. God the Father created God the Son, who uses the Holy Spirit in many ways. So this started with Arius, an elder in the Church of Alexandria, beginning of the fourth century. And but what he said was that because God was one, Jesus could not have also been truly God. And therefore, at one point, he was created by the Father. And before that, he did not exist, nor did the Holy Spirit. And so you can see he's, he's trying to honor this, the fact that God was one. And he's also trying to honor the scripture verses that say that Jesus was born. Jesus was born. You know, there was a time where 
where Jesus the man didn't exist. He was still Jesus. He was still one with the Father. But his humanity did have a beginning point. And, and Arianism got distracted by that and said, therefore, Jesus in his entirety had a beginning point. And, and, and they, they used the... Oh, and, and Jesus is a heavenly being, yes, in existence before creation, yes, and far greater than all of creation, yes, but not equal to the Father in all his attributes. He had a beginning point. He was begotten. And he's like the Father. He's similar to the Father, but not of the same nature. That's what Arianism taught. And his defense was verses like the only begotten Son. He was only begotten. Therefore, he was begotten from the Father and viewed begotten more in terms of the role of a father in conceiving a child. He also looked at Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There it is. He's firstborn. And therefore, he is simply a created being, but he happens to be the first of the created beings. And how do we, how do we answer that? Number one, only begotten. We, we know as Christians who take all of Scripture that this is a paradox, and we know that only begotten cannot mean that he was fully created in his, in his whole person at that moment. We know that he took on flesh, so there was a, there was a sense there, but it must re- refer to something in the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. And so what, how Arius understood begotten was incomplete. Only begotten. Um, also, firstborn is better to understand not his order in creation, but the right of leadership, the, the rights and privileges of a firstborn son. He, it's the right of leadership or authority in the family for one's generation. And so that's what Scripture is, a, is, is seeking to emphasize there. Again, if you only had those verses, then you could take them in different directions. But when you have all of Scripture and you know that all of Scripture is true, then how, am I, how I understand one verse is, is influenced by what does the rest of Scripture teach. And so, so in other words, he, he, was, he was dead wrong. And his views were condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Um, the Nicene Creed said this, only begotten Son of God, begotten, not made. In other words, proceeding from, not physically from. Is that, we're going to keep moving because we're going to spend more time on the end. But um, also in the Council of Constantinople, which was in 381, they added the phrase, begotten before all ages. And so what they were what they were suggesting is that this begetting was an eternal begetting. And, and there's a lot of controversy surrounding that. We're not going to go into it. But um, So Arius agreed that Christ was a supernatural heavenly being. So you see how he's, he's different, differing from modalism. He believes that Christ was, or believed, that he was a supernatural heavenly being of similar nature to God, but not of the same nature. And, and you, you've heard the, the phrase, one iota. And there, there's this, this word, homoousius, which means consubstantial or of the same nature. 
Both councils insisted on this word, homoousius. But, but um, Arius, what he said was homoousius. So he just added a single iota, and that changed that from the same nature to similar nature. And the church fought over that one iota for a hundred years. And it was condemned in both councils, but it continued to be taught. And, and it just goes to show why we have to be so careful with our words. Words really matter. They make a difference. They can be, they can be the difference between heresy and orthodoxy. And so, so from Arianism came a view called subordinationism. Now, don't, get that, don't confuse that with subordinate, but subordinationism is this idea that, hey, yes, there is one God, and yes, there are three persons. Let's embrace those two parts of the definition, but let's deny the equality of persons. And, and this would suggest, I think I have one more, I don't. So, so this would suggest that um, Arianism held that the Son was created and not divine. Subordinationism held that the Son was eternal, not created. So he is eternal not created, but still not equal to the Father in all his attributes and person. So he's somehow kind of a lesser God. He's inferior or subordinate. Now, Origen, Origen, how do you pronounce that? Origen, Origen, Origen. So he held this view back in AD 185, and, and he lived until uh, 254. But the church never followed him. This, this this never got any traction, was not accepted, really by, by any, and the councils rejected it. But what was he trying to do? Why would, why, why would he go into subordinationism? What is he zealous to protect? Yeah, he, he wants to maintain that there is one God. Right? And so, and he was trying to dis- protect also the distinction of the persons. Yes, there are three persons. I can't deny it. Okay, but how do we, how do we reconcile this? Again, he, he couldn't handle paradox. And so he came up with this idea of subordinationism. Um, but the Council of Nicaea clearly condemned this view. And, and there's, a, there's a young man, and this, this would... This would be other Sunday schools, but his name was Athanasius, and he was the single most influential person in the formation of the correct doctrine of the Trinity. And so he was there at the Council of Nicaea, and he was a young man in his 20s. And so as this was being formed, he was there, and the church, the, the church condemned these views, but there were still influential people in the church that continued to teach them for the next hundred years. And, and he fought that tooth and nail all the way through. He devoted his entire life to defending this doctrine of the Trinity against the Arian heresy and these others that, that, spurred, that came from it. And, and this man, he experienced five exiles and 17 years of flight and hiding just to stay alive as he continued to fight what had already been condemned by the councils. And, and I think, you know, I was just thinking this week of who is going to experience this when we talk about gender issues and things like that. You know, there, there will be a cost to pay. And it's, it's getting increasingly more clear 
that if you hold a biblical view of sexuality and gender and marriage, um, you are going to experience intense persecution. And, and there, we're going we're gonna to see that more and more here. So, anyways, the Athanasian, the Athanasian Creed, which was made after his life, just articulates everything that he believed and fought for in his life. And it's a wonderful affirmation of the Trinitarian doctrine. And it, it's actually still used today. It, it came about in the 4th century, and it's still used in its entirety today. So after subordinationism, there's this idea of adoptionism. And that's just that Jesus lived an ordinary life until his baptism. And that's when God adopted him as son and gave him supernatural powers. That has obvious problems, and it's, it's really not ever had any traction. So, God is three persons. Each person is fully God. And there is one God. And I'm not going to talk about this, but the um, um, filioque clause. Did I pronounce that right? Filioque. The filioque clause. And that's the idea that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And that was put in writing in 589. And um, before that, it was just that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And so in the, the Council of Nicaea, it was the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Well, John 15 says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. Jesus said, I shall send, you, send to you from the Father. But John 16 also says that the, the, the next chapter says that the, the Spirit, the Son will send the Spirit. And so this idea is, who does the Spirit come from? And we would affirm that the Spirit comes from the Son and the Spirit comes from the Father, both. Now, it's unfortunate in, the, in church history that this, this argument led to the dividing of the, the Eastern Orthodox, Greek, and Russian, and they split from Western Roman Catholic Christ, Christianity over this filioque clause. And, and the idea that, no, the, the Eastern said, nope, it just comes from the Father. And the Western said, nope, it comes from the Son and the Father. And um, so it was, a, it was a big debate. But it was really, it went beyond that. It was really about power and authority and about the Pope and who had control. So it was really more about that. But that was the final straw that broke them. So, so we, we move on. We've got tritheism. And tritheism just says, okay, yes, there's three gods. Each god is equal. But let's just throw out the, the one God. But you can't do that with throw, without throwing out the whole Bible. And so that's clearly a wrong view. It's a pagan view, and it's also the view of Mormonism. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't say three gods. They would really, I mean, it goes on beyond that. It's a view of Eastern religion with multiple gods. Um, and then Jehovah's Witnesses, where do they fall into this? Which, which error? Arianism. Arianism. Right? The Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus is God. Okay, now we move on. Um, this is really important. Herman Bavinck said this, in the confession of the Trinity throbs the heart of Christian religion. Every error results from, or upon deeper reflection, may be traced to a wrong view of this doctrine. Can you study this enough? Are you going to check the box after two Sunday schools? I hope not. No. 
We, we need to be studying this and, and thinking about it. And it's not just for our heads, it's for our worship. But think about this. The independence of God is at stake. If God is not three persons, then how can God... If God does not exist as an eternal community of fellowship, and we know God is a loving God and a relational God, then he would de- be de- absolutely dependent on creation for him to express community and joy and relationship. But God has that all within himself. He is completely independent. The atonement is at stake. Isaiah 53 says that we esteemed him, talking about Jesus, who was, who was going to come 700 years later, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, God, has put him to grief. When Jesus was on the cross, it was God the Father who was crushing his son. There, there was a sense in which God was pouring out on him the full wrath for sin. And, and that takes us to, if Jesus is not God, how could he as a mere human being take on the full, infinite wrath of God towards sin upon himself? He had to be fully God. And then when you think about this Trinitarian God sending his Son to be judged in a way that we will never understand, infinite wrath, he bore it on the cross. He drank every drop of the cup of God's wrath. It's mind-boggling. And yet Jesus had to be fully God to bear every drop of that wrath. So atonement is at stake. Justification by faith alone is at stake. If Jesus was only a man, how could we trust him to save us completely? But we can trust him. We can rest. He's not only a man. He is man. He had to be fully God and fully man to be our mediator. Um, Prayer and worship. If Jesus is not God, how can we pray to him? How can we worship him? Worship God alone. Jesus said it himself. It is written, you shall, when Satan tried to get him to worship him, worship God. And, but we can worship Jesus because he is God. It wrongly attributes credit for salvation, if Jesus were not God, to a creature rather than the creator. The unity of the universe is at stake. If no perfect plurality and perfect unity in God himself, then there's no basis for plurality well, certainly unity in, in the world today or in the universe. So much is at stake, and there's more. And so the Trinity defined, the Trinity distorted, and you can understand why Satan would want to distort this doctrine because everything is at stake here. So now let's, the Trinity applied, and, and there'll be more interaction here. Let's think about this. How do we apply this? So first, really in two categories. Category one, we apply this through worship. Category two, we apply this through imitation. Worship and imitation. So so meditate on who God is. God himself is this community of perfect love, joy, and glory. One person put it this way, Jesus lives in the bosom of the Father, John 1.18. 
That's this picture of love and intimacy. The Spirit lives to glorify Jesus, John 16. The Son glorifies the Father, John 17.4. And the Father glorifies the Son, John 17.5. For all eternity, John 17.5b. There's this dance of joy. Of It's utterly unselfish. This community that is utterly unselfish. Each member of the Trinity is ambitious for the other's glory. The Spirit exerts all of His energy to magnify and exalt the Son. I've heard it described there. You've seen the Washington Monument. You know that hundreds of thousands of dollars are spent on lights to light that up. Thousands upon thousands. I've heard it's 100,000. That might be an exaggeration. I don't think it is. But so much money spent on the lights, and nobody walks around and says, look at these incredible lights. They're priceless. They're so valuable. The lights exist for one purpose, to to just, on a dark night, to, to, to highlight the Washington Monument. Everybody, because of the lights, looks at the monument. And that's like the function of the Holy Spirit. He did every, even though he's equal with the God in every way, he, he does everything to magnify Jesus. There's incredible cooperation, unselfish cooperation. And then Jesus spends his entire life giving glory to the Father, obeying him in everything, delighting in him, trusting in him. So Jesus is pointing to the Father, even while the Holy Spirit is pointing to Jesus. And God the Father lavishes praise and glory on the Son. This is incredible community, and he invites us to be part of it. We talked about that a little bit last week. Um, Ephesians gives this picture of God exalting the Son and putting everything under his feet, but not us. We're the body of Christ. And so it's as if we're part of this dance of joy. And, and you know, we all have a sense and a desire for greatness. And, and people seek it through sports. They seek it through music. They seek it in a variety of different ways. We want to be great. That's a God-given desire because God has designed us for glory. And it's glory within this dance. And Jesus will always be the head. But it's such an incredible reflection, this utterly unselfish community. So meditate on who God is, but also meditate on what God has done. There's ontological equality. He, all parts of the Trinity, absolutely equal in every way. Same nature. And yet there's an, what, what, what is called an economic subordination. Now this isn't the same as subordinationism, where you say to be subordinate, is to be less valuable. This is called economic subordination. And what this means is they have chosen, though completely equal, to function differently. And every part of how that functionality is expressing who God is. And so J.C. Rao put it this way, it was the whole Trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man, Genesis 1.26. It was the whole Trinity again, which at the beginning of the Gospel seemed to say, let us save man. Let us make man. Let us save man. And we see that in creation. God the Father planned it. God the Son carried it out. God the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. There's this cooperation and this work together in creation. But we see that in redemption too. 
God the Father chose us to be saved. He sent God the Son who gladly came to die for us. And then God the Spirit opens our eyes to see the beauty of Christ and see what He's done for us and, and so that we can believe it and grasp it. On the cross, God the Son, in the power of the Spirit, was absorbing the wrath of His Father. That's exactly what Hebrews 9.14 says. On the cross, God the Son in the power of the Spirit was absorbing the full wrath of God for sin. It's this incredible unity and equality. Westminster Shorter Catechism asserts that man's chief end is to glorify God, right? And to enjoy Him forever. Chief end. You know how much flack God gets for telling us to glorify Him? People hate that. People say, what do you mean? Who is this guy who wants us to glorify him? What an egotistical. But when you see within the Trinity and you see this unselfish community of casting glory on the other, he's simply inviting us to be part of what he does. He's inviting us to be part. He's not saying glorify me because this is the end. He's saying join this, and as I glorify the Son, you glorify the Son. And as the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son, you glorify. And, and it's this self-giving community. So when the Westminster Confession says, man's chief end is to glorify God, that's not self-centered. That's God-centered in the fullness of who God is as a Trinitarian God. Trent we need to transform our worship, who he is and what he's done. Delight in that, but also transform what we do day to day. This should affect us personally in huge ways. G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, said this. And again, we don't, I don't think he was Orthodox. He was in many ways, but he was off in some ways. But he said this, God is infinitely happy because there is an other's orientation at the heart of his being. Because he does not seek his own glory, but the glory of others. R.C. Sproul said this, Within the Holy Trinity, we see that, it, that in principle, the notion of subordination does not carry with it the notion of inferiority. Christ willingly submitted to the Father without a word of protest. It's precisely that willingness that we are called to imitate in submitting ourselves to authority. Do you see this? This is so critical, especially for today, that to submit is not to make yourself less than. The Trinity shows us that to submit is to be like God himself. God is a submitting God. He submits to himself. And, and therefore, we can, we can imitate him with joy and with dignity in three different areas. But before, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read in Philippians. Philippians is this beautiful Trinitarian passage. But at the beginning of Philippians, it says this, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you see what he's inviting us to do? To be just like him. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
who though he was in the form of God, he was God. He didn't grasp onto it. He made himself. He chose to become nothing. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Um, I'm going to I'm going to go on. So imitate him in the home. What does this look like? Ontological equality and yet economic subordination. What does this look like? Well, it looks like a husband leading his wife. And it looks like a wife submitting to her husband. That evil word in our culture. But it's so beautiful when you think about it in, in light of the Trinity. A wife is called to submit to her husband. But what does the husband's authority look like? God has chosen to order things in such a way that points to him. So how does God use his authority of the son? He tells him what to do lovingly, but he says, here's the plan. But then he, in turn, exalts the son. And Proverbs 31 gives us a picture of this. What, what does a husband use his authority to do? In the end, he praises his wife. Right? And it's, it's not a brow-beating authority, but it's a, it's a leadership. It is a leadership. And, and it's a leadership that takes the wisdom of the wife and, and listens, but has to choose at the end of the way. You know that as husbands, our, one big problem is there's, there's sometimes authoritarian leadership that points to this and pulls it out of context and, and de destroys the wife. But then there's another leadership that abdicates and won't take responsibility and just says, well, whatever, whatever you think. I was just thinking about restaurant. The difference between a husband who, who just says, well, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? Versus a husband who searches out and understands his wife and picks where to go because he knows what she wants. That's a bad example. Um, yeah. I think we're, it's not surprising that we have independent, in a bad way, unsubmissive generation of children going quite a ways back if women in the home are not showing the beauty of submission. Yeah. And they're not showing that Jesus was, you know, that whole Trinitarian submission, then the kids are never going to see that obeying their parents or submitting to their parents is beautiful because the wife is standing there saying, I am woman, hear me roar. And the kids are like, well, I am child, hear me roar. And we have chaos because there's no beauty in that. Yeah, position. yeah. And, and it's no wonder that back in creation and the, in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, what does Satan do? He disrupts the, the marital relationship and he disrupts it on this very point. He throws off the authority structure. Adam abdicates. He goes to Eve, and, and Eve chooses, and then, and then what happens? There's, there's war in the relationship ever since, and, and Satan loves to see this in the family. So there is a beauty in submission. The wife who says, wow, when I submit, I'm being like God himself. I am expressing the life of the Trinity through submission because that's who God is at his very, at his very nature. And, um, and the husband who leads poorly is, is, is defacing who God is. 
there is a loving unity within marriage. But also, children. Children are called to honor and obey their parents. You know, when children honor and obey their parents, they're being like God himself. And so there's, there's something so grand about this. And when it's demonstrated in the home, which it'll never be demonstrated perfectly, not even close to perfectly, but we, we seek to move in that direction. There's peace in the home when kids see that this isn't about equality. Yes, we're equal, but this isn't, a, this isn't about dignity. There's dignity and submission and obedience. How about in the church? You know that we are so individual as individualistic as, as American Christians also? Here's what I believe. Don't mess with me. And... Um, but you know that an individual isolated from the church or the body of Christ cannot adequately, adequately reflect the love and social life of the Trinity. You cannot do it. You need to be in the church. And it's not enough to just show up to church. The Trinity shows us that God is, is personal and close and, and intimate. And therefore, at church, we strive toward closeness and intimacy and interdependence and working together. Um, it's, and, it, you know, God has given different parts to the body. And we don't say, well, because I'm not a, a hand, I'm not as important, or because you're not like me, you're not important. That's 1 Corinthians 12. Um, there's, there's a sense in which God has distributed gifts to the church and we can delight in them. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12 says that he's given greater honor to the parts that seem to lack it. So the, the parts of the body that we might tend to think, well, that's not as important, God himself gives greater honor to. In our culture, we, we don't view submission as something with as great, as, as great of honor as leadership. But God does both. They're both within the Trinity. And we're called to submit to elders. You guys are called to submit to three elders who are holding the Bible and holding you accountable to that. I'm called to submit to the elders. I just submit to two, Jim and Brett. I don't, I don't submit to myself. So we're all called. Jim is called to submit to two elders. You guys are... So there is an authority in the church, and it's not a bad thing. Sometimes it's abused, yes, and that's horrible. But it's a good thing um, because it demonstrates who God is. Employment. What about employment? How do we demonstrate the Trinity and employment? I'll just, I'll just open that up. I mean, we, yeah, I'm sorry. We don't have time. I'm going to, employment. What does it look like to, to submit to your boss? It's a beautiful thing. We all want to be the boss because we think somehow that's what is, is the greatest. But it's not. Jesus even said that, that those who serve are the greatest. And, and so, you know, I think we're going to get to heaven. I know this just from Scripture, that when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised at where the most honor lies. It's going, to, it's going to lie in the most unassuming servants that nobody knows about. If we were able to see crowns and how many jewels were on them. Yeah, Jim. My whole function is to make you successful. <laughs> okay. Now, 
What if we as employees were like that? My whole purpose is to make you successful. And what if bosses and employers' whole purpose was to exalt and give credit to the workforce? I mean, it's just amazing. It works. It really works. So employment, how we relate with the government. There's been a lot of flack about that. And I, and I think there are some areas where we nitpick in the, wrong, in the wrong corner. But there are other areas where we are called to submit, not when it goes against Scripture. Yeah. And that's the heartbeat of God, to give glory, to, to defer glory. Um, yeah? It's kind of like how you were mentioning the Trinity, you know, it's the Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, and then they glorify the Holy Spirit, who glorifies, you know, puts it in us to glorify them, you know. And I, I just kind of... It's incredible. I, well said, puts it in us to glorify them. Yeah. Yeah. And in one sense, he was born. There was a beginning to the man, Jesus Christ. But he existed from eternity past. But yeah, no, that's good. Um, how about this, this last one? We imitate the Trinity, not just by how we function within the family, in the home. It's a beautiful thing. Not just how we function within the church. When we cooperate together and a church runs smoothly, with every part doing its part, and not just in our employment or how we relate with the governing authorities. And again, if they tell us not to meet, we're going to meet. We're not going to submit to them because we must meet. That's a command in Scripture. And so we could spend a lot of time there. But, um, but also in the fact that the Trinity is a sending community. The Trinity sends and, and Jesus in, in John 17 said, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We are a sending community. We get, we send out. And I think sometimes parents have a hard time with this. We love our kids and we just want to keep them here and we want to, you know, have houses on our property for all our kids to live. And I don't think that's the thrust of scripture. The Bible talks about kids as being an arrow that you shoot out. We don't just keep them here. We send them out. But also the church. The church sends out. Sometimes we send out our best. And, and if, if you can use that word. And, and you, what do you do? You give away. You gain by losing. J.D. Greer's fantastic book, Gain by Losing. 
So, let's pray. We don't, we don't have a lot of time. Let's, we'll just pray as a big group. And, and I want to just pray that we would view authority and submission like our Trinitarian God does. And that we would, that we would emulate that. But also, that He would remove obstacles in our lives. Like the root of bitterness the love of pleasure, self-centeredness, selfish ambition. Do you know that these war against this concept of, of others-centeredness? And so let's just pray. And you can, you can open us up. Mark, would you open us up?